Good evening, and welcome to the September 2018 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. We have two incredible guests tonight, elected officials from our state legislature, who are two of the hardest-working lawmakers I know. Assemblymember Evan Lowe, who represents a district in the South Bay and serves as chair of the LGBT caucus, will be with us. He'll be talking about some of the many bills he sponsored this year, and we'll be sharing what he's got in store for us next term. And then Senator Scott Weiner is back with us to talk about everything from net neutrality to bills he's authored to address homeless problems throughout California. These two men are staunch advocates for LGBT rights, and I'm really excited to have them both here tonight. It's also the second day of our fall fundraising drive here at KRCB Radio, and you should know that KRCB is a public radio station funded in large part by listeners just like you. The fans of Outbeat Radio who look forward each and every Sunday night to hearing the latest news and information from the LGBT community here in the North Bay and beyond get to listen without commercial interruption or influence. And we need your support to keep this program and others like it here on KRCB coming to you on your radio, streaming service, or on our mobile app. Now, our goal tonight is to raise $300 this hour. We're taking calls throughout this program to receive your donation of any amount. And we do have some pretty amazing thank you gifts, including a couple of special ones to offer you during just this hour. All donations are fully tax deductible. So I hope you'll show us some love tonight and consider these great rewards. First, for a donation of $100, I'll give you signed hardcover editions of my two books, Coming Out from Behind the Badge and American Heroes Coming Out from Behind the Badge. These two books share the intimate stories of real police officers, firefighters, and paramedics who have come out as LGB or T on the job. I have one set, and it'll go to the first caller who makes a $100 donation to KRCB. And if you become a sustaining donor at just $10 a month, I'll give you an all-weekend pass to this year's Outwatch LGBTQ Film Festival, happening October 12th through the 14th in Santa Rosa. Outwatch is featuring seven amazing films, starting with Maplethorpe on opening night. This is a $70 value, and we have only four of these all-weekend passes available to give this hour. Help us make our goal of $300 by calling right now, 707-584-2020. That's 707-584-2020. We'll take your donation right over the phone. It's quick and easy, and I promise you won't miss too much of the show. So stay with us. Assemblymember Evan Lowe and Senator Scott Weiner are coming next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, September 23rd, 2018. I love to change the world, but I don't know what to... This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of 2018. The Human Rights Campaign annual national dinner was as eventful as ever last week, with anti-Trump sentiments being shared throughout the evening in great force. Human Rights Campaign President Chad Griffin said, quote, I don't have to tell any of you that we are living in truly frightening times. Day after day, we've seen our most fundamental rights under attack by the highest levels of government, and the headlines couldn't be any worse, end quote. Among the evening's attendees were Eric Holder, Academy Award-winning actress Anne Hathaway, and Olympic figure skater and medalist Adam Rippon. Senators Cory Booker and Kamala Harris made appearances as well. Former Vice President Joe Biden was also present and spoke to the very revved-up crowd with chants of Run, Joe, Run heard throughout the auditorium. Biden has yet to confirm if he'll run against Trump in 2020, but he left no stone unturned when sharing his disdain for the 45th president. 
And in Illinois, an anti-LGBTQ plan hatched by a high-ranking member of Chicago's Catholic Resurrection Church has been called off. The Windy City Times reports Pastor Paul Kalchik announced in a postscript to his reprinted homily message that a rainbow flag found in the church, along with parishioners' pledge cards mixed with incense, would be burned in front of the church as a sacrilege during a prayer service following a September 29th Feast of St. Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael 430 Mass. LGBT Weekly News received what they called an anonymous email with detailed information about the upcoming anti-gay action. Archdiocese of Chicago Communications and Marketing Director Ann Maselli responded to the threat, saying on behalf of the Archdiocese, quote, we can confirm that the pastor has agreed not to move forward with these activities, end quote. We're also learning that the homily message called for the restoration of the Orthodox Roman Catholic Church, as well as this statement, quote, We cannot let the current troubles keep us from our mission to go make more disciples of the Lord, nor should modern-day distractions like global warming, LGBT rights, or even immigration issues take precedence over our mission, end quote. And here in California, LGBTQ Nation reported that West Hollywood is proving they have something for all of us in the LGBT community with their first annual Bi Pride event. It's the first citywide Bi Pride celebration in the U.S. Bi Visibility Day originated in 1999 at the International Gay and Lesbian Association World Conference in Johannesburg, South Africa. It's annually designated for September 23rd. Bi Pride is being organized by the City of West Hollywood, Ambi LA, and HRC LA. Ambi President Ian Lawrence Torino said, quote, While a small number of cities have issued proclamations recognizing Bi Visibility Day, this is a historic celebration as the first full-fledged Bi Pride celebration hosted by any city in the United States. For a calendar of LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Evan Lowe was elected to the California State Assembly in November of 2014 to represent District 28. At the age of just 31, Assemblymember Lowe became the youngest Asian American legislator to have been elected to the Assembly in state history. He chairs the State Business and Professions Committee and, as well, the California Legislative LGBT Caucus. This year, Assemblymember Lowe sponsored several important pieces of LGBTQ legislation, including a bill that I had the pleasure to draft for him requiring LGBT awareness training for law enforcement and a controversial bill banning conversion therapy for adults here in California. Well, Assemblymember Lowe, welcome to our show. Thanks so very much for having me. It's wonderful to have you on. And uh, a lot's going on, so let's just get right to it. But for our listeners who maybe are not familiar with you, uh, being we're up in the North Bay here, talk a little bit about your path to the State Assembly. Well, um, I had previously served on a city council in the city of Campbell and as mayor and uh, did that amount of time for eight years and also taught American government at De Anza Community College. But uh, growing up uh, fourth-generation Californian, uh, as an Asian-American, culturally, politics was not something that you typically uh, went and, and did. In fact, my father is an optometrist, so uh, he had always wanted me to uh, similarly become a doctor, uh, a lawyer, or an engineer. Uh, more safe, uh, typical, traditional paths of occupations, but I felt that it was important to, to give back and 
uh, found myself uh, currently uh, serving now in um, in public service. As I would eat, or I would I would suggest uh, as a proud career politician, uh, ever since I was uh, 23 years old. Wow, you got into it so young, and and I didn't realize that you were a teacher at a community college. Uh, being a fellow teacher here, that's great to hear. Yeah, I like to practice what I preach. Awesome, I love it. Uh, talk about your role. You've been an out gay man, and certainly a wonderful role model for our community. What role did that have in your campaign for state office? Well. When I first ran uh, for public office again in the city council, it was during a time in which the president, uh, George W. Bush, was proposing a constitutional amendment between uh, a man and a woman, which again would require all states to ratify the constitution there. Uh, We did not have visible, uh, to, to a great amount, visible role models that we do today, whether or not they be Olympians, uh, NBA, uh, uh, football players, uh, actors, actresses, singers, uh, musicians, politicians alike. Uh, the prevalence of the Internet uh, wasn't something that was widely used, um, and so it was very difficult to um, run as an openly gay person in which there had never been an openly gay person elected in the city that, that I uh, live in. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's important that uh, the constituencies uh, see us as everyday neighbors, uh, brothers, sisters, cousins, co-workers, and that we are who we are. And uh, hopefully that level of authenticity is something that is respected and that um, I project myself as who I am and you see what you get and hopefully individuals will think that we can deliver for the basic fundamentals just like everybody else. That's awesome. And we're really fortunate in California because we have a group of out LGBT legislators, and and you lead that LGBT caucus in Sacramento. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's a group of a total of eight openly LGBT state legislators in Sacramento, and our fundamental function is to advance the interests of the LGBT community, just like there's the Women's Caucus or the Asian Pacific Islander Caucus. There is the Millennial Caucus, the Black Caucus, the Latino Caucus. So uh, it is to respect and um, embrace the strengths of our diversity. Uh, the caucus has historically been instrumental in advocating for issues like adoption rights and um, marriage rights. Uh, hospital visitation rights, uh, anti-conversion therapy, um, diversity amongst uh, our rank and file in training for public safety officials, uh, you name it. Uh, these are the things that we fundamentally work on, and I'm hopeful that we can continue to demonstrate the strengths of our diversity in, in our great state. Well, you've been one of the most prolific legislators that I've seen in a long time. I mean, your name and your face is on so many different issues, uh, which is actually really exciting. So far, talk about some of the ones that really stand out to you, the bills that stand out to you that you're most proud of. Well, my district is Silicon Valley, and what is that much more challenging is that of the benefits of tech, uh, but also some of the challenges that come with tech. So we, strangely enough, uh, many would articulate that we have too many jobs here in Silicon Valley. And as a result of that, we don't have the infrastructure in place to accommodate uh, the economic vitality and the economic growth with respect to transportation corridors, housing, uh, these are, or even education. These are all issues that uh, take time to plan uh, in a thoughtful way. And yet the 
uh, growth has outpaced that of the infrastructure development. So that has been a key area to engage on. Uh, but similarly, how do we make sure that there's a win-win solution, which is to say that the business and, and economic vitality continues to thrive, but that also happens for that of the worker. And when we talk about the future of work, what does that look like when drones uh, are replacing uh, security guards mm. or when um, Airbnb uh, is uh, widely adopted and used for that of uh, hotel workers who um, typically uh, help get funding from uh, the taxes that are associated, or even uh, autonomous vehicles and that of truck drivers. What does the future of work look like for that? And the skill sets that are required. So these are all the things that I've been focused on, and I'm hopeful that um, by being very intentional about bringing together that of business and uh, the workforce, we can do so. Whereas in traditional methods, it's been an us versus them. You're either for the business or you're for the worker, mm-hmm. but you can't be for both. Whereas I, I, we, we, we can demonstrate that we need to be uh, pro-worker and also pro-business at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, another area the legislature I think has been pretty active in uh, is criminal justice and, and bail reform being one of those things. And, of course, I had the great pleasure of working with you on AB 2504, which is a bill to provide uh, LGBT awareness training for law enforcement. But, but that's really one small piece in a much larger puzzle of restoring faith in law enforcement. What's your perspective on that? Uh, what types of, of justice reform and improvements could we make to better our relationship with law enforcement? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for your engagement on Assembly Bill 2504. You've been an integral part about getting this bill through the legislative process. Uh, and as you've uh, indicated already, uh, this piece of legislation would provide specific LGBT educational training for individuals uh, to become peace officers and dispatchers. Um, with respect to terminology on identity and sexual orientation and how law enforcement can best respond to LGBT-specific hate crimes and domestic violence. Um, So those are some of the key elements that we are looking at. But what I think is what we see in everyday lives is that of the disconnect between that of rank-and-file law enforcement and that of other communities of interest. And there seems to be a disconnect that you're either uh, for the police officer or, or you're for um, transparency and that they're somehow not one in the same. Uh, that is, again, our obligation as a community, not just on government, but to, number one, uh, continue to further develop the level of trust and respect uh, for law enforcement in specific communities, and then also understanding the role that the state has to play to say if there is work to be done within law enforcement to gain more respect and trust uh, in their communities, then we need to fully and adequately uh, fund uh, post and other training that are required to get the results that we need. So I think it's a multi-pronged approach, but I just would urge caution as to the us versus them. We see many protests. Um, and uh, for one side or the other, whether it be Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter. And, again, in this um, environment, uh, it seems to be the lowest common denominator. Rather, we are all interconnected and intertwined and neighbors. And uh, I'm hopeful that with this piece of legislation and others that we can continue to foster that type of dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's that's what it's all about. It's about relationship building and and creating a mutual understanding, and that goes for both the law enforcement side and the public side. 
Uh, one of the bills that you took on, a pretty challenging issue, uh, was that of conversion therapy. And you made a strategic decision to pull that bill back to retool it. Talk a little bit about that and what was your thinking around the work that still needs to be done in that band? Yeah, uh, the state of California in 2012 was the first state in the nation to pass a conversion therapy ban for minors 18 and under. And since 2012, uh, 15 other states, and then some, continually growing, uh, have also passed similar pieces of legislation since 2012. Uh, that legislation only impacted minors 18 and under. Uh, this year, I had a bill proposal that would uh, qualify conversion therapy as a fraudulent practice which would have an impact on not just minors, but for adults as well as the general population. Uh, as a result of that um, bill, uh, there was a great amount of uh, resistance to the bill. Um, there was significant amount of misinformation that was out in the community saying that this bill would have banned Bibles, and that was strategically done by a a Republican assembly member who was also running for governor because it was sensationalism. Um, but you can see how ridiculous it would be. Uh, having said that, uh, I also engaged on a listening tour with uh, other uh, communities who had concern with the legislation, specifically from the religious community, and trying to find a common ground. And what I found with this listening tour was that a vast majority of the leaders and the religious community indicated their opposition to conversion therapy, which is that they would publicly denounce it, but they felt like uh, the bill that was presented uh, would uh, put them up to vulnerabilities on litigations, and they didn't want to face such lawsuits. So trying to tinker to find some uh, language that made sense and to uh, uh, fully support the legislative intent of um, denouncing conversion therapy is uh, the goal that I have in mind, and hopefully can do so in the very near future. That's interesting. Uh, the medical community, of course, has deemed uh, conversion therapy to be, as you say, fraudulent, that it's ineffective, it's actually harmful. And so it's interesting for me to hear that you talked with l religious leaders who agreed with you, uh, and so their opposition really wasn't about the idea that we should be practicing conversion therapy or not. It was about their own potential civil liability. That's right, and we in the legislative process talk oftentimes about the unintended consequences, uh, which is that with the intent of the bill versus the actual application of it and what would uh, happen from it. So uh, to, get, to see um, religious leaders publicly denounced, and in fact uh, it, was, it was publicly denounced in an op-ed to the uh, Orange County Register, uh, by the former president of the National Evangelical Association, uh, indicating that reparative therapy not only was an anti-Christian, but rather it is also uh, harmful to one's health. So seeing that um, momentum from opposite sides uh, gave me some sense of pause to say there might be something here about uh, partnership over partisanship and making sure that we get this right. Uh, and I also would acknowledge that there are some in the community that say, well, why would you, why would you want to compromise uh, when you're in the driver's seat? But, but my obligation and role is to, to do the best of my abilities to, to get it done and um, trying to make sure that these issues transcend partisanship. 
Right, right. Well, and I think right now it's particularly important uh, as we look at the landscape of the federal government and the and the presidential administration and all of the rollback that we're seeing uh, regarding LGBT rights sort of in general. But, but the greatest threat in my mind is this whole idea of religious freedom and what does that mean and how does that potentially usurp equality. Uh, give me your thoughts. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because with respect to um, this bill on qualifying conversion therapy as a fraudulent practice, when I was meeting throughout the state with um, religious leaders, uh, some would simply say, well, why don't you just clarify that this exempts churches, uh, and then you can uh, make sure that you don't get onto these other uh, dicey issues. And my response was, you mean like the religious exemptions that would prohibit uh, um, me from being served a wedding cake? or whether or not I would be de- would legally be denied service at a restaurant by going to any of these other states, uh, or adoption rights. Uh, these similar, quote-unquote, religious exemptions are exactly the problem that we're dealing with. Um, so these take uh, long conversations. And I just also want to be very clear, Greg, that much of the advancement for the LGBT community has happened in a relatively short period of time. So while there might be some on the, um, within the LGBT community, LGBT community who are saying that we demand uh, these, these rights immediately, uh, change sometimes is slow, but in an incremental. But as long as we're headed in the right direction, uh, that's what I'm, I'm hopeful for. Yeah, and I think we're fortunate in California. We have a really good foundation of law uh, to protect us on a variety of fronts that just doesn't exist in, in most other states. Uh, and the feeling that I hear from a lot of our listeners is, and my own students, is that it just feels like there's this mountain of pushback coming uh, and a threat and a challenge to some of the gains that we've seen over the last eight years. That is uh, something that we certainly see and where California wants to take an exact uh, opposing view, which is that we uh, celebrate our diversity and that we want to codify and enshrine all of the values into law and be the blueprint for the entire nation, not just simply with respect to LGBT issues, but on women's rights, on uh, rights for minorities, on uh, rights for those that are undocumented, uh, all the above. Uh, We feel like... uh, we can um, demonstrate the best of our abilities in embracing our strengths. So as you look out now to this next term coming up, uh, what, are your, what are your big priorities and your big goals? What's on the list? Well, again, I think uh, trying to thread the needle on conversion therapy and making sure that we can uh, protect uh, all hardworking Californians from the harmful practice of the uh, Trump administration and taking a leadership role not only in the nation, but in the world. And that's why we passed historic um, climate change goals and ensuring that we have uh, record settings of attaining renewable energies and sustaining models uh, with uh, the environment uh, and also focused on uh, sensible safety regulations with respect to firearms. Uh, these are the things that are key and fundamental to uh, everyday Californians and I'm, uh, again, honored to also participate in that role. But uh, fundamentally, the issues facing the LGBT community should also be issues that we care about with respect to women's rights and equal rights for all people. So the issues, again, just to the LGBT community should be um, fighting for those 
and we should be equally present in the Women's March. We should be present at uh, the March for Our Lives on firearm safety regulations and on everything else. So it's a wide encompassing, we're stronger, we are stronger together. Yeah, equality really means one thing, doesn't it? It, it doesn't just mean different things based on gender or sexual orientation or race. Equality is equality. That's right, and that's why I found myself at the airport when there was a Muslim ban uh, standing with uh, other individuals, and that's why I was at the Women's March and uh, would stand, speak out uh, with so those that are undocumented. I mean, this is our community. Each of these segments are, are part of our community. And, again, we are, we are most certainly stronger together. There's an important election coming up in November. Uh, talk about how important it is for members of our LGBT community, but really everybody, to get out and vote. What's our obligation? And unfortunately, in the state of California, um, in 2014, we had some of the lowest voter turnout in over uh, 30 years. And much of it is just due to the electoral system that will actually take uh, quite a bit of time to discuss. But um, just given our direct democracy and these propositions and these uh, qualification for these uh, initiatives. Um, this coming November, we'll have 11 propositions on the statewide ballot. The last cycle, we had 17 propositions. And I guarantee you that when, when people see these propositions, it's uh, difficult to understand so much legalese. Yes means no, no means yes. And shouldn't we um, allow for our elected representatives to do their jobs? Um, but rather, these special interests have um, used this system to their advantage uh, to get uh, specific pieces of, of law p uh, passed by, by the electorate. So it is one that, um, you know, whoever said democracy was easy and wasn't messy, but, but again, our obligation as uh, citizens to be engaged and, frankly, to hold our elected officials accountable. So to that voter who may be intimidated by the language on the ballot, uh, we get typically some information ahead of time to read in order to prepare. But what suggestion do you have for that voter who is intimidated by it and doesn't understand if they're voting yes when yes means no and no means yes? Yeah. Well, there are nonpartisan organizations that do a very good job at vetting out the specifics in a nonpartisan fashion. The League of Women Voters does a very good job at that. And I would also suggest that if an individual felt um, more aligned to their respective uh, party affiliations, they can always visit the respective party uh, websites, statewide party websites, in which the uh, parties have taken official positions on these measures, uh, and or perhaps talking to someone that they trust and or value. But to have those dinner conversations and to find out uh, where uh, people land on some of these things. Um, but. Uh, it's just part of that obligation to, to do that type of work. Um, unfortunately, again, it's been the, the electoral process has been taken advantage of and it has been being abused, and that's another um, area of focus that I've been focused uh, working on in terms of electoral reforms. Mm -hmm. Well, and by not voting, we have already seen an example of what can happen. We can end up with someone in a very high office that may not represent our interests. California's got a governor uh, that's going to be elected this November, and, you know, it's not a hands-down, it's not a slam-down slam, slam down win, is it? it? Elections never are. I can't tell you how many times we've seen polling after polling says this certain outcome would occur, um, and yet the opposite happens. I mean, you already alluded to the presidential election, 
Uh, no one ever thought that would happen. So uh, it's, a, and it's incumbent upon us to do uh, the best jobs that we can uh, and as much as possible. But again, it, is, uh, it can be taxing. It can be long, hard, and difficult to understand. But again, it's, it's, it's the least that we can do. Right. Well, whatever choice you make, just make a choice. Just don't sit back and do nothing. Right. Right. Uh, tell us where people can go to learn more about you and to follow your work. Yes. Um, follow on the Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, searching uh, just Evan Lowe, E-V-A-N, last name Lowe, L-O-W, and our, our website to, to keep posted and apprised and uh, try to do the best of our abilities to make sure that we respond in a timely fashion as well. Excellent. And we will put links to your office on our website at OutbeatNews.com. Again, you can go to show notes at the top of the page, and you'll find links there. Assemblymember Evan Lowe, thanks so much for being with us. Good luck, and keep up the good work for us. Well, thanks again, Greg, and look forward to the continuing partnership with you as well. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News In-Depth here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. We are in the midst of our fall fundraising drive, and if you haven't yet called KRCB to make your donation, now's your chance. We have a goal to raise $300 this hour, and you can help. We have two special thank you gifts available for just this hour. For the first caller with a donation of $100, I'll give you a signed copy of my two books, Coming Out from Behind the Badge and American Heroes Coming Out from Behind the Badge. These are two hardcover editions. I have one set for the first caller with a $100 tax-deductible donation. Now, I also have four weekend passes to this year's Outwatch Film Festival happening October 12th through the 14th. If you become a sustaining member at just $10 a month, you'll get a full festival pass valued at $70. So give me a call right now at 707-584-2020. That's 707-584-2020. Senator Scott Weiner represents District 11 in the California State Senate. District 11 includes all of San Francisco, Broadmoor, Colma, and Daly City, as well as portions of South San Francisco. He was elected in 2016, and during his first year in the Senate, Senator Weiner passed 11 bills that were signed into law by Governor Brown, including a landmark bill to streamline housing approvals in cities not meeting their housing goals. Senator Weiner serves as chair of the Senate Human Services Committee, where he's working to expand California's social safety net including leading an effort to stem California's high rates of food insecurity and youth homelessness. He also serves on the Transportation and Housing Committee, the Energy, Utilities, and Communications Committee, the Appropriations Committee, and the Public Safety Committee. Well, Senator, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. It's always terrific to get caught up with you, and you're such a busy guy. I don't think I know another legislator who I see more in the news at the edge of every major issue. Uh, well, you know, there are a lot of issues to deal with, and I have some hardworking colleagues, so collectively we, we try to cover the field. Well, let's jump right into it. Uh, one of the ones that stood out to me immediately was net neutrality. Mm-hmm. And for our listeners who don't understand that or haven't really read too much about it, tell us about it and why it's an important issue here in California. Uh, sure. I think sometimes people hear the phrase uh, net neutrality but don't always know exactly what it is, and it's actually quite simple. Uh, net neutrality is about making sure that when you go on the Internet, you get to go wherever you want. You get to pick what websites you want to go to, where you go for news, information, uh, for search engines, for shopping, for whatever you are using the Internet for, that you get to decide where you go. Uh, And net neutrality uh, basically requires, or I should say prohibits, 
the Internet service providers like AT&T, Comcast, Verizon. It prohibits them from blocking access to websites and from having fast lanes and slow lanes. So, in other words, uh, they could say, uh, hey, we're, we're going to charge websites money in order not to be blocked. And if you don't pay the money, we're just blocking you. And that means consumers can't get to those websites anymore. Or they can have fast lanes and slow lanes so that companies or websites that are paying more money, uh, people can quickly and easily access those websites. But if a company doesn't or can't pay money, uh, it would be really slow to the point where you can't really access it. And so the, these Internet service providers with, without net neutrality protections can engage in all sorts of monkey business and uh, prevent us from going to disfavored websites. And so net neutrality is about ensuring a free and open Internet uh, where we all get to go where we want to go, where we have a level playing field, where small businesses can compete with big businesses, where innovation can thrive, where activists can do what they need to do to organize and so forth. And this was not a problem until the Trump administration made a change this last year, right? Well, net neutrality has been a battle for a few decades now, uh, and and uh, the, the FCC started regulating around net neutrality um, in the early 2000s, uh, and there, you know, there and there was a um, an FCC regulation issued in 2010, and, and a few before that, the the telecom and cable companies have fought the federal government every step of the way, lots of lawsuits, lots of political pressure to try to stop the federal government from protecting net neutrality. In 2015, the Obama administration adopted what's called the Open Internet Order, which is uh, really um, a very uh, robust level of net neutrality protections. The cable and and telecom companies fought it like crazy, uh, and, and then when Donald Trump took office and his new FCC chairman, uh, Ajit Pai, came in, the FCC quickly repealed not just the 2015 Obama net neutrality rule, but repealed all federal protection for net neutrality. Uh, so it created a, basically a void, and, and we know what happens when there's a void. All sorts of abuses will take place, and that's why we stepped in. Fantastic. And so tell us about the bill and where it stands. Sure. The bill is uh, Senate Bill 822. Uh, it will create the strongest net neutrality protections in the country. It will adopt all of the key protections contained in the Obama uh, net neutrality order, uh, and it does so in a way that um, is enforceable by the state. Uh, so it will uh, ensure uh, an open Internet and real access uh, so that we as individuals can go wherever we want to go on the Internet. And uh, that's basically what it does. It's, um, I think, setting a gold standard for the country. You know, ideally, uh, this would be handled at the federal level with one uniform national standard. I think that's, that, that's, we, we all agree that that is the ideal situation. Right. But the federal government has abdicated. Uh, they repealed net neutrality. Uh, we are not optimistic that the federal government will step up any time in the near future. So uh, as a result, it's up to us as a state to protect our consumers, our residents, our businesses, our activists. Well, we appreciate that. Let's shift over to housing, because that's been, a, uh, I think, a cornerstone of a lot of the work that you've done. And certainly it's a crisis here in the North Bay after you know all the fires and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, talk about the scope of the problem as you see it statewide and, and some of the 
bills that you've authored to address the housing problem? Sure. Yeah, we have uh, California has a uh, a terrible terrible housing crisis, and it really there there are various reasons for it, but the the root of it is that we have a uh, an extreme housing shortage. Uh, we're short uh, somewhere between two and a half and three and a half million homes. Uh, you know, our, our housing deficit is. Um, about the same as the, the combined housing deficit of the other 49 states. That's how severe and extreme our situation is in California. And so we're not, we don't have enough housing overall. We also are not uh, investing enough in housing, subsidized housing for low-income people to make sure that our lowest-income residents uh, have a place to live. And so we're seeing all sorts of terrible um, results. Uh, we see the spike in homelessness. Uh, we uh, uh, see uh, overcrowding uh, in housing. Uh, we see people being evicted and displaced. Uh, you know, kids who go away, say, to college and want to move back to where they grew up and simply cannot afford to do so unless they live in their parents' basements. Uh, young working families that uh, have to leave the region or even the state uh, to find housing they can afford for a growing family. And people being pushed into huge commutes, hour and a half, two hour each way, uh, which increases carbon emissions, undermines our climate goals, and, and makes for families that are not as healthy as they could be. Uh, so we are working uh, to shift how we do housing. Uh, we've historically let every city decide for itself whether it wants to create any housing, and if so, how much. Uh, and that has not worked. Uh, it has been a key factor in this housing shortage. And so um, the state uh, is now gradually stepping in, not to take over local housing decisions. I'm a big believer in local decision-making, but to set standards, to say you're, you have local decision-making as a city, but you have to meet certain standards. You can't just have no housing being built. You have to meet your housing goals. You need to allow housing uh, near public transportation, multi-unit. Uh, we just have to do things differently. And we're also trying to invest more public funding in low-income housing because the market is not going to produce housing affordable to our lowest-income residents. Sure. Well, and obviously a huge byproduct of this housing shortage is just the enormous uh, homelessness problem. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just in San Francisco. We read a lot about San Francisco's homeless problem, but here in Santa Rosa, there's an enormous crisis, and I'll, I'll call it that. Um, and you've done some work to address the specific problems around those with mental disabilities who are homeless. Talk about the bill to allow some counties to, to do in conservatorships. Uh, sure. And, and you know, I, I, my, my constituents and my neighbors in San Francisco, I, sometimes we think that um, our homeless uh, challenges are unique, and they're not. It's right. Oakland and Santa Rosa and Sacramento and Fresno and Bakersfield and L.A. and San Diego. It's everywhere. And I think it's really important when we talk about homelessness to understand that, that our homeless population is very diverse. An awful lot of homeless people do not have mental health or drug addiction people. These are, or, excuse me, mental health or drug addiction problems. Uh, these are people who are uh, poor, who, who can't afford housing. People who are living in their cars, living in shelters, uh, perhaps living with their kids in cars or shelters, um, and going to work every day, bringing their kids to school every day. In San Francisco, we have 2,200 homeless children in our school district. Wow. So that it's a huge problem. And for that population, 
that it, it's the easiest to address. If you provide them with housing that they can afford and some basic support, uh, they're going to succeed. Uh, they are people who are holding down jobs, who are raising kids. Uh, they, these are high-functioning people who, who simply need some help. The, there are other homeless people um, that you're referring to who have uh, mental health uh, and drug addiction challenges, often severe, um, who need uh, an additional level of support. Uh, and uh, you, you can't just say, hey, here's a housing unit for you. That's not going to work for them. Um, and for the most severely debilitated uh, folks on our streets uh, with mental health and drug addiction issues, um, we do need to consider whether a conservatorship is appropriate. And a conservatorship, uh, for those who don't know, is when uh, it can be a family member, but here we're talking about the county, uh, will come in and uh, through after a judicial proceeding with due process and representation by counsel uh, and uh, be able to make decisions for the individual if that person can't make decisions for themselves. We're talking about the people who are sleeping in their feces, who are running out in traffic, yelling at cars, who are just not all there and can't make decisions for themselves and who are dying on our streets. It's a small percentage of homeless people, but it's very real. And the county will be able to come in and, and, and get them into a stable situation. For many of them, it may be supportive housing. For some, it might be a psychiatric facility. But it's for a temporary period of time, uh, get them health care, uh, a place to, to, with a roof over their head, um, uh, addiction treatment, mental health treatment, try to get them stable so that they can survive and, and not be on our streets dying. So the bill creates a new kind of conservatorship that is very specific for individuals uh, with, um, particularly with severe addiction issues where the current conservatorship laws are not working for them. Uh, and it's a pilot program for uh, three counties, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego. Uh, there is a desire to expand it to other counties, but we're going to start by trying it in these counties. Uh, and again, this is for, in San Francisco, we estimate for about 1% of our homeless people. This is right. not about, you know, uh, taking, you know, rounding up homeless people and putting them all into institutions. We don't want to do that. This is for the people who are most debilitated on our streets, the ones who are dying. Yeah, and who, who just can't take care of themselves. Right. We have other existing laws that enable law enforcement and some medical professionals to do that. And so really being able to do that for those who are most at risk on the street just makes sense to me. Well, well and I think one last point I'll make, because, you know, the conservatorships, you're depriving someone of their civil liberties for a period of time. It's a very serious thing, and that's why we're making this very narrow and targeted. Um, but I think it's also really important for people to understand, for those who have qualms about conservatorships, that right now we already have conservatorships for these severely debilitated people. It's called jail. These individuals end up getting arrested over and over again. They end up getting cycled in and out of the criminal justice system, constant interactions with the police, which is not what we want. This is not a criminal issue. It is a health issue. Uh, and, you know, the, the Los Angeles County jails are the largest mental health provider in the United States of America. Our, we're using our jail system to treat people for drug addiction and mental health issues, and that is not what we should be doing. And conservatorships are one piece of the puzzle to getting people healthy in a non-criminal justice way. Yeah. It's, such a, it's just such a complex problem, um, and there is no one easy solution. It's not just a matter of doing one thing. 
Um, and another population, of course, that's really heavily impacted with, by homelessness are LGBT youth. Talk about the Homeless Youth Act. Yeah, so um, it, we have in California, um, at a minimum, and it's probably an undercount, but at a minimum, 15,000 uh, young people aged 13 to 24 who are on our streets on a given night. Uh, these uh, kids are uh, incredibly vulnerable. They have needs that are very different from older, chronically homeless uh, individuals. Uh, they are um, at risk of victimization, of sexual assault, of human trafficking, of all sorts of um, you know bad results. They are also, in many ways, uh, the the easiest to help. Uh, and if you can get a homeless young person off the streets quickly into a supportive environment, you can get them back on track and they can have a successful life. If you if you let them linger on the street, they become chronically homeless. Uh, they uh, any mental health or drug issue that they have will become severe, and then it will become harder and harder uh, to help them. Okay. Two-thirds of California counties do not have youth-specific homeless programs. So these kids, some 15- or 17-year-old kid, comes into the system, uh, and they get put into the adult homeless system, which is not what they need, very different needs. And so we're trying to have the state come in and do more, provide more resources, uh, provide more structure, more support for our counties to have youth-specific homeless programs and to make sure we're helping these kids. Uh, and so this year in the budget, we obtained almost $30 million in new funding for youth homelessness. We had previously been spending about $10 million a year, so we almost quadrupled what the state invests. And then I have a bill sitting on the governor's desk, SB uh, Senate Bill 918, the Homeless Youth Act, uh, which creates, um, starts to create more structure and requires um, a better, more focused state strategy around uh, addressing youth homelessness. Oh, thank goodness. What, what are the prospects? you think he's going to sign it? Uh, you know, uh, I don't. I can't. I can't say for sure. The you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Governor Brown. Uh, he has his own uh, views on a lot of different issues. We did work closely with his uh, with his office and with his departments, and we took some amendments that they requested. So my hope is that he'll uh, sign it. Um, you know, the bill is uh, it, it's a start. It's a first. A step, a foundation on which we can build in the future to have a more unified uh, state state approach to reducing youth homelessness. Great. Well, I know he's got a stack of bills on his desk. Uh, he sure does. And he's already signed some pretty significant ones, including one on bail reform. This is a huge change to the criminal justice system and one that's probably long overdue. Tell us about it. Uh, sure. Um, when it comes to uh, pretrial uh, detention, uh, you know, we in this country we have this system, uh, which is a, a I, I think a bad system, which we are now uh, in California changing, uh, where uh, if you are uh, accused of a of a crime and you are awaiting trial, whether it's for a month or six months or two years, um, whether you uh, the, what determines whether you sit in jail pre-trial or are at home is how much money you have. So, you know, you can have a situation where two people are in jail for or being accused and awaiting trial for the exact same crime, but one has money and one doesn't. And so the one with money gets to be out on bail and await trial at home in the community, working, being with their family, 
and so forth. The one who doesn't have money gets to sit in jail, uh, probably lose their job because they can't go to work, be separated from their kids. Their kids may not have anyone to support them, uh, and maybe lose their housing because they're not able to make rent. Uh, and so the idea is to get rid, and this is what we did with uh, SB 10, authored by my colleague, my colleagues, uh, Senator Bob Hertzberg from L.A. and Assemblyman Rob Bonta from Alameda, to eliminate money bail, to say this is not, money is not how we should be deciding who stays in jail pretrial and who doesn't. It should be based on a risk assessment. Are you a risk to the community? Um, then, then you should be held in jail. If you're not a risk to the community, you should not be held in jail. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. So that's, that's what SB 10 is about. Um, the, uh, you know, there were some progressives who had concerns about how we structured the, um, the determination of whether someone is a risk or not a risk. And, of course, it was a product of of negotiation, we had a, I think probably a more, you know, a bill that was a little more aggressive last year, but we couldn't get the votes on it. And so you have negotiations, and in the end, it's important for even those who are critical of the bill to understand that what we did here was got rid of money bail. That that that's like the holy grail in a lot of ways. And for if someone is concerned about the risk assessment, uh, then that can be fixed in the future. We can always go back and work on that to make sure that we are striking the right balance. But this is a huge, huge advance for criminal justice reform in California. Yeah, well, it does a lot to defeat the whole idea that uh, the quality of justice comes with how much, like you say, with how much money you have. Yeah. And this puts everybody on a much more uh, even playing field. Let's go back to LGBT civil rights. Uh, it just feels like things are rolling backwards quicker than can be imagined, all the discussion around religious liberty uh, and all the pushback. But we're really fortunate here in California. We have a lot of LGBT out legislators. Uh, talk about the LGBT caucus and give us a, just a sense of how large that is in the state legislature. Yeah, we're, uh, we are at a per it's a perilous time for the LGBT community in this country with everything going on with uh, the with, with the Trump administration and this um, very misguided uh, effort uh, to uh, to say that the First Amendment and so and so-called religious liberty uh, trumps civil rights, uh, and I'm very concerned they're going to get more and more aggressive, especially with the changing Supreme Court, uh, to start getting rid of or striking down civil rights protections in the name of. Uh, religious liberty, and you know, ultimately, uh, someone's—we all have a right to our religious views and practices, but that doesn't give us the right to override the law and discriminate uh, against other people. So it's just terrible. So here in California, we're going in the other direction. We are doing more and more to protect our LGBT uh, community. And we do have the largest uh, uh, LGBT caucus, the highest number of um, LGBT um, state legislators uh, in the country here in California, but also in the history of the United States. We have eight. There, there are four state senators and uh, four assembly members. Uh, we're pretty, very diverse, uh, four men, four women, uh, majority, people of color. Um, there are uh, uh, two of us from the Bay Area, a few from L.A., but also a couple from San Diego, 
uh, two from the Central Valley, uh, one from the Inland Empire. So we're, we're it's uh, you know it's very diverse. We do, we have yet to elect a, a transgender uh, legislator, but I know that will happen eventually, and I and I am eagerly awaiting uh, that to happen. Uh, and so because of the size of our caucus and the critical mass, and we also are in leadership positions. Mm-hmm. Senator Tony Atkins from San Diego is the president uh, of the Senate. She runs the show in the, in the Senate. Uh, Senator Ricardo Lara, until recently, was the chair of the Appropriations Committee in the Senate, which is a very, very powerful uh, position. Assemblyman Todd Gloria um, is the, um, uh, the, the majority whip in the, uh, in the Assembly. So we have a, we have a good representation. But we can't take it for granted. It's easy to slide back. Uh, and so as people either uh, term out or move on to a different uh, role or, uh, you know, we have to make sure that we are cultivating a bench of LGBT candidates uh, to, uh, you know, assume leadership. We don't want to slide back. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about the election coming up in November. I mean, clearly one of the reasons we ran into problems or ended up with the problem we have is because people simply didn't participate. They didn't engage. Uh, To our listeners out there, here's your chance. Recruit them to vote. Yeah, I, I, you know, people, uh, you know, people need to develop a habit that you just vote in every election, even if you think the election isn't important. Every election is important. If it's just your school board on the ballot or it's your city council and you're not focused on your local government, I mean, these, all of these elections affect your life. You know, we know what happens at the federal level. At the, the, your, your state um, elected representatives play a huge role in so many aspects of life. Your, your city council members and county supervisors decide all sorts of local issues that affect your life. Your school board members decide what kind of education your kid's going to get. So it, re- it matters so much, and, and it's very um, it's demoralizing sometimes uh, for those of us who are in public life when we see some of the low uh, voter turnout that happens in, in elections. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not enough to come out once a year in, November, in the November presidential election or once every four years uh, to vote for president. That's great. That's really important. But people need to vote every single time. Uh, we've made it really easy in California. You can become a permanent absentee voter, and you can just have the ballot arrive at your house, and you, you have a month to fill it out and either mail it back in or drop it off. Uh, we've, we, you can now register up till the day of the election. Uh, so we've made it really, really, really easy California, you, you don't even have to pay postage to mail your absentee ballot back. So we're doing our role to make it easy, uh, and and your job is just to you know uh, get to get to know the issues and, and fill out your ballot and um, and and be an engaged uh, citizen. Yes, please get out and vote. Get out and vote. Uh, so as you look out now to this coming year after the election, uh, talk about what's on your priority list. What are the issues that you're most interested in taking on? Already working towards uh, next year, and we have um, we don't know everything we're going to do, but uh, we're going to continue to do some aggressive housing work. We had a bill that didn't move forward this year uh, to allow more housing near public transportation. We're going to bring that bill back, and we're working with folks to try to build a, a broader coalition. Um, we're going to be doing some aggressive clean energy work. 
Um, we have uh, um, some LGBT-related bills we're doing, including uh, a bill we tried this year that didn't work. We're going to try again next year to, to protect uh, transgender prisoners who are just often treated horribly uh, in jail and prison settings. Um, and then also uh, we're working on a bill to address an inequity um, around in the sex offender registry that discriminates against um, uh, uh, gay uh, boys in particular, puts them on the sex offender registry for having sex with their boyfriend, whereas a, a, a straight man having sex with his girlfriend doesn't go on the sex offender registry. And so trying to get rid of that inequity. Uh, and we'll continue to do work around, you know, around uh, homelessness and youth homelessness in particular. Uh, and, you know, just a lot, a lot of different things we have to get done. And you'll have a new governor to work with. We will. We will. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to miss Governor Brown. He is uh, um, just a really brilliant leader on so many levels. But I'm looking forward to working uh, with, uh, uh, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm being a little presumptuous, but um, I, uh, Governor Newsom, uh, I think, uh, I think uh, Gavin is going to be a uh, terrific governor for California. Um, I, uh, you know, watched him as mayor of San Francisco, and he's a strong leader. Um, he's not a pushover. He also has, I think, uh, so many of the of the right values uh, in terms of what California is about, about equality, about lifting up uh, people so everyone can succeed, uh, and also recognizing that climate change is an existential threat, and we'll, we have to continue to lead on uh, our effort to save Mother Earth. Boy, you're not kidding. You're not kidding. Tell our listeners where they can go to follow all of your work, if they can even try to keep pace uh, with everything you're doing. Uh, yeah, so um, I'm very active on, on social media. Um, so you can follow me on uh, Facebook, which is uh, Scott Wiener 2 and Wiener is I before E. Twitter is Scott underscore Wiener. Uh, and uh, Instagram is the, is the same, Scott underscore Wiener. Uh, and my website, uh, where you can get to all of that, is uh, scottwiener.com. Perfect. And if you missed that, we'll have links on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page. We've been talking with Senator Scott Wiener. Thank you so much for joining us tonight and for all the great work you're doing for California. Great. Thank you for having me. And that wraps up our hour. My thanks tonight to Assemblymember Evan Lowe and to Senator Scott Wiener for joining us. I'll be back next Sunday with an Outbeat Extra edition of Outbeat News in Depth. My two guests will be Jessica Carroll, the new Programs Director for Positive Images here in Santa Rosa, and Officer James Gonzalez of the San Jose Police Department, who is their LGBT liaison officer. That's at 8 p.m. next Sunday night and only here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. And if you weren't able to call this hour with a donation, I ask that you please go to our website and make a donation now in support of Outbeat Radio. It's really easy, and you'll still be able to get some great thank you gifts. Just go to donate.krcb.org. And thank you for your support. In the meantime, do have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. You're listening to 91.1 KRCB-FM Windsor and 90.9 K215-CQ Santa Rosa. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next.
the silence is a quiet and it feels like it's getting hard to breathe and i know you feel like dying but i promise we'll take the world to its feet Bring it to his feet Thousand times again 